morning we're returning to a series we started some months ago in the book of Revelation. Next week you're going to get to catch your breath again. I'll be away next Sunday, but Keith Craw, Associate Pastor of Church of the Holy Cross, will be here. I'd love to convince him to come back, to come here and have four chapters read for his sermon. So that you'll be glad when I get back and only have us read two, but I doubt that Keith would do that. So... We'll return to Revelation after Keith is here, and we'll be in it through the rest of the Easter season. Now, as dark as Revelation can be in some places, it is a fitting book for Easter. Because Revelation is about the unveiling of the risen Christ in our world. And it is especially about the unveiling of the risen Christ through us. And in us. In the current world. Now, when I first started reading the Bible as a teenager... Of course you start with the most difficult book in the Bible because this is what the world has been waiting for is for me to start reading Revelation and reveal its mysteries. So I started with Revelation. Seriously, though, I, I always found this reading that we've just heard to be the most fascinating in all of Revelation. This cosmic woman with the sun and the moon around her. She's about to give birth to this very important child, and the dragon is just waiting to devour the child as soon as he is born. But he's protected. He's called up to God and to a throne. The woman is then sent into the wilderness where the dragon will pursue her on earth. I remember thinking this must have something to do with Jesus. I'm sure I wasn't the first person to think that, actually, but I just wasn't sure what, what is going on here. You know, understanding Revelation is like the old adage of how you eat an elephant, one bite at a time, right? You can become paralyzed just trying to figure out where to take the first bite in a passage like this. Well, we're going to try to take one big bite this morning in chapters 12 and 13. So if you have your Bible, I hope you'll open it to Revelation chapter 12. And actually, about the middle of chapter 13... At the end of verse 10, there's a key phrase. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. These chapters, like so much of the Bible, are about a struggle. A battle that's taking place between God and evil. And what Revelation shows is that God's people are actually on the front lines of this battle. But we're not always aware of the battle. We're not always aware that this battle is going on. Revelation is written in this unique style, in the style of an apocalypse, so as to say, this is what's really happening when you pull back the veil of the world. When you look beneath the surface of things. For American Christians, this can be especially hard to grasp. What's so difficult about being a Christian? What kind of endurance does it call for? For the last generation, there's been a large swath of the American landscape that was called a Christian culture. Past presidential candidates had to court Christians in order to win. So it's been very easy to call yourself a Christian. 
But here in Revelation, we're called to endurance and faith. What is it about following Jesus that requires endurance? I want to show you two ways we're called to endurance in these chapters. The first is that we must endure the assault of the dark spiritual forces in our world. We must endure the assault of the dark spiritual forces in our world. So in these chapters, Christian's ancient enemy is described in several ways. As a dragon, as a serpent, as the devil and Satan. Both these words, devil and Satan, simply mean adversary or enemy. But all these words apply to the same character. Satan's task in heaven was to bring a legal case before God against humanity. To bring a legal case before God against humanity. So look with me at chapter 12, verse 10. Chapter 12, verse 10. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Do you remember what Satan was doing in the book of Job? Remember? He was standing in the court of God and he was accusing Job of serving God only for God's benefits to him. He told God to let him assault Job and he would prove this. He would prove his case. Once Job was tested, he would curse God. This is what Satan accused him of. Here in Revelation, we're learning that this type of accusing is Satan's MO. This is the way he operates. He is the accuser. What, what does this mean? Have you ever been around a person whose criticisms become more than just criticism? They're closer to a form of contempt or condemnation. Now, let me answer the question for you. You have been around this kind of person because we all become this kind of person at certain points in our lives. It happens to all of us at darker moments, and it can become part of our character if we let it. It happens in marriages all the time. Where criticisms of behavior like uh, you're being mean <laughs> slowly morph into character assassination and condemnation. You're a jerk, and you're always going to be one. At times it's worse than this, but these sermons are rated PG, PG-13. <laughs> All of us have slipped into this kind of behavior at one point or another. We usually regret it, though honestly, sometimes we enjoy it. It can feel pretty good for a time to demonize someone else while we begin to look better and better in our own estimation. But when we do this, the main point here, we take on the character of the accuser, the evil one. We are co-opted into his cause. Satan's sole task in heaven was to accuse humanity, to bring before God the case of humanity's damnable guilt. And here's the problem. Satan was partly right. He was partly right. You and I are guilty before God. We have fallen short of the glory of God, as Paul says in Romans. 
We have and we still do delight in our own various forms of resistance and stubborn independence. But Satan's voice is always one of utter condemnation. <laughs> Satan never offers a possibility of redemption. And this is where Satan is wrong. And this is where we are wrong when we mimic his behavior. When Jesus died, he was accused, right? He was accused of being guilty when he was not guilty. You see, this is where Satan finally overreached. Jesus the innocent died an unjust death. And to Satan's surprise and chagrin, through his death, Jesus absorbed all the true accusations of our fallenness into his own pure innocence. This war in heaven in Revelation 12 is taking place because Satan has lost the court battle. You see, Michael is Jesus' angel, and he is do his, doing Jesus' bidding. Jesus' death for us means that Satan's accusations against us no longer have a place in God's court. The prosecutor against us has been thrown out. But he continues to wage his war. So listen again to chapter 12, verse 12. Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. <clears throat> Once he's on earth, we're told that the dragon pursues the woman, but the woman is protected. So then the dragon pursues her offspring, those who are faithful to Jesus, who maintain his testimony, we're told. Who do you think this woman is? We're going to talk about this more in a few minutes, but for now, this woman is Israel of the Old Testament. The daughters of Eve who longed to give birth to the Messiah who would crush the serpent's head. You see, this is what the serpent was told in Genesis after Eve's tragic fall. Because of what you've done, her seed will crush your head. You'll bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. This woman is a daughter of Eve who longs to give birth to this Messiah who would crush the serpent's head. But now, she is also the church who seeks to bear Christ in the world, who seeks to give birth to Christ again in our own time. But the dragon is trying to destroy her, and he will use any tactic available. So rivers, for instance, did you hear this? The, the dragon spews forth a river of water to try to drown her, to destroy her. Rivers are supposed to be fresh-flowing waters of life in the Bible. Did you remember in Genesis chapter oh, it's 1 and 2, there are rivers that flow from Eden, and they give life to the land. Rivers are supposed to be waters of life, but the dragon spews out poisonous waters. These are allegories, metaphors for false and divisive teachings. The dragon wishes to make the church like himself, to turn us into a group of accusers, to bear his condemnation toward each other and toward the world, rather than bearing the grace and truth of Christ toward each other and toward the world. You know, if we're willing to act like the dragon in the name of Christ, it's all the better for the dragon. 
This is what the dragon is seeking to do. But Jesus is our good shepherd. He leads his people in the wilderness. You see, the woman was protected in the wilderness of the world. Jesus leads his people in the wilderness to green pastures and beside still waters, fresh waters that refresh our souls. He protects the church. But the dragon assaults the church. The dragon seeks to co-opt the church and have God's people act on his behalf. This is one reason that being a Christian requires so much endurance and faith. The dragon will use any tactic possible and imaginable to undermine the church. Before we move on, we need to notice one more tactic the dragon will use. We're naive to think that the devil only works on individuals. Where he can, he loves to infect whole systems where he can corrupt with greater efficiency. So in chapter 13, we hear about two beasts who do the bidding of the dragon. You know, beasts in scripture, when they're not literal animals, or where they're, where they're not only literal animals, they're nations. This is coming from the book of Daniel. John is drawing from the apocalypse of Daniel to talk about these beasts in his own day. They represent nations that have usurped the role of God in the lives of people. So that people's loyalty must be toward the nation. Or <clears throat> loyalty to God and loyalty to the nation end up meaning the same thing. This is exactly what happened in the 30 year period after Jesus' resurrection. The measure of, measure of your loyalty to God was based on your loyalty to the Roman Empire. The especially sad part of this is that Jews, too, who, had, who would reap financial benefit from Rome, allied with Rome against the Christians. They had a common enemy, and so they worked together. This first beast represents Rome. So Rome acts as a hideous substitute for God. Instead of people giving their allegiance to God, they give it to the beast. Did you know that the name of the angel in chapter 12, Michael, actually means who is like God? This is the meaning of his name. Who is like God? But in direct contrast, those who worship the beast offer a perverted version of this saying, who is like the beast? The second beast which essentially does what the first one says, represents Israel and their rejection of Jesus. You see, when we reject God, we actually become a puppet. A puppet for the evil one, and we do his bidding. Their politics, in this case, have turned into worship, whether they realize it or not. Revelation is offering us a stern warning about any nation or way of thinking, any political philosophy that could eat away at our allegiance to God. Equating allegiance to a nation and an allegiance to God. And it's also warning nations beware of becoming a beast. Any nation that tries to suck up room for people to carry out their faithfulness to God becomes a beast. Now, the dragon is relentless in his tactics. 
He assaults from every side, seeking to wreak havoc on the church, to co-opt the church for his own ends. And this is one way in which we're called to endurance, to resist the evil one, the dragon. But in response to the enemy's work, we're called to one other form of endurance, and it's this. We're called to bring Christ to birth within the darkness. We are called to bring Christ to birth within the darkness. So in the book of Genesis, remember, Eve tragically disobeys, is deceived by the serpent. God tells the serpent Eve's seed would crush his head. But strangely, as the story moves on, Eve's daughters are in this constant struggle to bear children. Remember this? Sarah, the mother of Isaac. Rebecca, the mother of Jacob, Rachel, Hannah, all of these women become mothers only by ceaseless prayers and miracles. They're in a constant struggle to bear children. There are even women who bear children only to have the child's life threatened by kings, like in the situation with Moses and Pharaoh. Moses only survives by his mother's willingness to disobey the government in this case and to pray for his survival. By the time we reach the New Testament, Israel is like a mother longing to give birth to the Messiah, the one who would bring final redemption. So by the time we reach a Mary, Jesus' mother, her own labor completes the history of Mother Israel's labor, all of which was necessary to form Christ in this world to deliver Christ into this world. Christ was born into the world the first time in struggle. He died and his death gave a mortal wound to the dragon. The dragon's end is certain. But what are Christ's servants? What is the church to do while the dragon continues to wage his war? Now listen to chapter 12, verse 11. Chapter 12, verse 11. They have conquered him, that is, the dragon, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives, even unto death. You know, Jesus' death and resurrection are not the only factors in the defeat of Satan. Did you notice this? These are crucial, but they are only the beginning. Satan's defeat is continued in the world through Christians. Christians who follow in the way of Jesus, who continue to bring Christ to birth in the world through lives of obedience and love. Hear the passage again. They have conquered. We mimic Christ, who is the first to conquer. The church is pregnant with the life of Christ. Like Mary, Christ lives within us by the Spirit. And in all our living, we are called to give birth to Christ. Now, from what I've heard, every labor is painful. I'm not sure it's appropriate for me to say this, but I'm certain it's true. Giving birth to Christ in our lives is the most painful of any labor. What does this giving birth to Christ look like? Well, hear this verse again. 
They have conquered the dragon by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. The key part of this passage for us is the end. They loved not their lives even unto death. Early Christians, these Christians who lived under the empires of the beasts, they introduced to the world a revolutionary type of revolution. It was a way of revolution that the world had never seen before. In the face of violence, anger, and hatred, Christians were committed to loving their enemies and forgiving their persecutors. In the face of immorality, Christians were committed to purity. In the face of excessive wealth, greed, and extreme poverty, Christians were committed to radical generosity. They loved not their lives, even unto death. This is the strategy of conquest in the empire of Jesus. This radical way of revolution would eventually topple the beast of the Roman Empire. But it's also the way to topple the beast that exists within us. We can only give birth to Christ as much as we are willing to love not our lives even unto death. passage should lead us to ask this question, these questions. Is there any way that you're holding on to your life and clenching your life? Because as much as you're clenching your own life and seeking to hold on to it, you will never be able to give birth to Christ in your life. Um, while Katie was pregnant with Evangeline, she did lots of practice with breathing exercises. I, I often ask Katie before I share stories. I haven't asked about this one. She's probably going to be unhappy. Anyway, we'll be okay. We'll get through this. <laughs> she did lots of practice with breathing exercises and these relaxation methods. And there were lots of testimonies of people who'd say that when they did labor this way, uh, the beginning stages would pass without the same intense pain as other methods. And I was really skeptical. And, and if, I'm not saying that this always works, but when Evangeline was born, I was very persuaded. Because not only did the birth happen quickly, but Katie was different throughout the labor, during the labor, and then after. It was a dramatic difference. And we, you know, while she was practicing this, she'd be sitting on the couch listening to these breathing exercises, and I would walk by and just kind of smile, and her eyes would be closed, and she would know that I was sneering at her. And so she would <laughs> give me some reaction. <laughs> what's, what's significant to me about this is that giving birth to Christ in our own lives means relaxing our grip. What it means for someone to give birth is that you're willing to let go of your own life so that another life can come forth from you. And what's essential for us to give birth to Christ through our lives in this world is that we let go of our own. We relax our grip and we allow Christ to have his way. Once we do this, 
when we're willing to embrace Christ and His way of being in the world. That is, we're willing to serve the world in His holiness and in His love. So being a Christian requires great endurance. Endurance against the assault of the evil one and all his minions that seek to wreak havoc within the church. And it also requires endurance and giving birth to the risen Christ in the midst of the darkness. In the midst of the darkness that exists in our hearts, in the midst of the darkness that exists in the world that we work and we carry out our family lives in and we play in day in and day out. So, let me invite you to stand as we prepare to give our allegiance to Christ in the words of the Nicene Creed. And I invite you to join me in shouting our Easter anthem again. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Alleluia. Alleluia.